Good morning to you. My name's Matt Turnbull. I don't know all of you yet. Um, this is my wife, Christy, who's playing the piano, and my son, McAdam, and my daughter, Bella, are now embarrassed. Um, but we're thankful to be a part of this church almost four years this fall, which is really a, a blessing to us and our family. So thank you for, for being our church family all these years. Today we get to talk about God, and we get to read about God in his words. So we're going we're gonna to be in Acts chapter 17. If you want to turn in your Bibles now, I'm going to preview this verse. Uh, um, but then, of course, I'm going to, um, we're going to read it together also in just a moment. Now, many of you have favorite passages in the Bible that encourage you from, from month to month and year to year. And those portions of scripture might be sort of like your favorite chair at home or your favorite dessert. I'm not trying to trivialize the Bible, um, but even though it's just a chair or a piece of my wife's apple pie, sometimes just sitting there or eating that pie can make the world seem like a brighter place. And that's exactly what Acts 17 does to my entire heart and spirit and mind. It's Paul's defense of the gospel to the Athenians in this chapter is one of those hope-producing parts of the Bible for me. It's become even more comforting and hope-producing in the past 10 years. And you, you might ask, why is that? Not just because of things going on in my life, but as you know, our culture is changing rapidly. There are rapid and, and radical changes going on in American culture right now. Some of that change is good and necessary and healthy, but some of it is definitely not healthy and not good. And besides the fact that rapid change itself can be unsettling to us as human beings, whether it's good or bad, nevertheless, these other changes in our culture that are not great are unsettling to us as Christians because it seems like the world keeps getting worldlier and worldlier by the month these days. Let me give you an example. In 2014, the Pew Research Center conducted a now famous major religious landscape study about American culture. I couldn't give you this year's, it happens every seven years and they're still doing the 2021 study. So this is seven years old, but nevertheless, this is what they said on the study. Religious nuns, which is a short, these are not people who've dedicated their lives to God. These are people who decide they're, they're not affiliated with the church. So N-O-N-E-S. Religious nuns, a shorthand we use to refer to people who self-identify as either atheists, agnostics, or their religion is nothing in particular, now make up roughly 23% of the U.S. adult population. This is seven years ago. This is a stark increase from 2007, the last time a similar Pew Research study was conducted, when 16% of Americans were nuns. During that same time period, self-identified Christians in American culture fell from 78% to 71%. Now, that's quite a change. And you, you need to know, this is something that doesn't make the news, okay, is that in the midst of that change also, the nuns, 40, 49% of the nuns do believe in God. So it's not that 23% of our culture is becoming atheistic because half of the nuns believe in God. So that, that doesn't make much, um, you know, that doesn't get in the news. But the point is that actually this number of people who are not identifying themselves as, as affiliated with a religion um, is almost a quarter of our, of our population. And that's, that's seven years ago. Well, 
That kind of social change is unsettling to Christians, especially, um, because, because we long for more Americans, not fewer, to come to know Jesus and to love him and follow him. Furthermore, we're living in a period of time when more and more people are identifying themselves or embracing alternate lifestyles. As an example, knowing what the Bible beautifully and clearly articulates about homosexual practice, we Christians feel the tension acutely when the Supreme Court several years ago, especially Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, decided that Americans have the constitutional right to a new kind of marriage. Our society actually seems fixated on sexual and gender expression in, in diverse forms. And whereas God in his word has revealed to us the, the simple beauty of being a man or a woman created in the image of the creator um, and has revealed the wholesome goodness of a man and a woman being married and beginning a new family, nevertheless, our culture considers ideas like that to be at least quaint, possibly restrictive, and in some cases, harmful. We're told by many media voices that anyone who clings to Jesus' sexual ethics and who resists new definitions of marriage or gender must necessarily be a bigot, maybe even a hateful person. So it's no wonder that Christians who trust the teachings of Christ can feel like strangers in their own culture. It's no wonder that we can feel very unsettled when we feel even powerless sometimes regarding the cultural narrative about ourselves or just powerless to do something and, and feel alienated from the flow of society. I think, I, know, I think you know what I'm talking about. So if you're like me, that sense of powerlessness or that feeling of alienation leads pretty naturally to some very bad theological musings. So here's some of the things that I start thinking badly. We look at our culture and we start to think that God is probably not very powerful or at least not very close to America. In light of, of growing secularization in our culture, he almost seems like a toy-sized figure placed on a ridge far, far away. And is he at work, we wonder? Is God involved in America's cultural life? Can we actually, as Christians, trust him in the midst of cultural upheaval like we've been experiencing? That's a vital question. Now, I just want to comfort you that Paul knew that feeling very well, especially when he experienced Greek culture in Athens up close and personal. Personally, actually. Um, during his time in the city of Athens, he saw what we can easily see in our culture, which is a culture that's ragged and is coming apart, and in some ways feels alienated to people who follow Jesus. And we can easily think that no culture has been in our situation before, but actually if we read history carefully, or if we just read our Bibles, even the history of the people of God, we'll realize that cultural decay is something that happens to all cultures all the time. So Athens was definitely not the new Jerusalem when Paul visited it, in, in 50 AD. So today, as citizens of American culture, living in a very worldly um, environment, we get to visit our comfortable chair and dive in to a piece of my wife's apple pie and Acts ch chapter 17. Now, I want to give you a preview because it's pretty exciting what happens in this chapter. 
Okay, first of all, we get to see Paul face an ungodly culture and all of its spiritually discouraging features. Secondly, we also get to see Paul approach our very problem in our relationship with our culture. What did Paul consider, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God as he was, what did he consider to be the antidote to that discouragement that comes from living in a growingly secular culture? Secondly, or thirdly, what did Paul consider to be a strategic and effective response to a culture like that? And how then should you and I respond to our culture and the growing power of secularization in America? That's the thing we're going to be asking and also answering in this passage. Now, I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the, the end of the story at the beginning, and that is this. That Paul's answer, I want you to be thinking about it, is this, twofold. Enjoy God and talk about Jesus. Let's stand and hear the reading of God's word. Acts 17, 15 through 34. Now, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. <laughs> I love that line. You bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let's stop right here because I don't want to steal the excitement of what he's about to, to proclaim to them. So this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for the privilege of hearing your word. We give thanks to you for being people that you have called to come to know you and that you're feeding us directly by the power of your Holy Spirit through the things that you have said through your servant, Paul. We pray that you would give us grace and wisdom and understanding to actually perceive what you are saying through Paul. And we pray you give us grace and wisdom and understanding by your spirit to understand the, the implications for the way we think, the way we live, the way we engage our culture, and the way we get to worship and, and, and be in relationship with you at this time in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, now notice we have several clues um, in this passage about what the culture of Athens was like at the time. This is 50 AD, about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. This is Paul's second missionary journey, and now he finds himself in Athens. 
And one thing we've got to remember is that Athens, like America right now, was influential far beyond its borders. In fact, in the ancient world, people like Plutarch and people like Cicero and other people would travel to Athens to get an education. It was the Harvard of the ancient world. It's where you went if you wanted to be totally current with the, with the latest intellectual fashions, as well as be trained in all the glorious Greek philosophical traditions. So that's, in many ways, like America. People come to America because of our cultural influence, not only here, but also around the world. Greece's ideas and art and architecture and learning exercised a huge influence, not only during the time um, in the ancient world, but also, as we know, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. American architecture has been massively affected by the, the, the architecture in Athens, Greece. It has become a model for, for our public buildings in many cases. Um, so, so hundreds of years of influence um, that Athens has exercised in world culture. And Athens was at that time, like America still is in many ways, absolutely beautiful. But this passage tells us how walking through the city affected Paul's spirit. So he's in the midst of his journey. He's Let's watch that. He's, he's, he's waiting for um, Timothy and some friends to come, come be with him. He doesn't like to travel or do very much without people with him. Okay, this is just a side note. Paul's not a Lone Ranger Christian. Like, he's amazing. But he doesn't do stuff by himself. He, he needs people with him. He knows that. So he's waiting for his friends to get there. And so he's walking through the city. And, and notice that he, it says that his, in verse 17, no, I'm sorry, in verse 16, it says that Paul's spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Okay, now that word provoked means made angry, irritated. Have you ever been irritated by your culture? This is exactly how Paul's feeling right now. Our spirits are regularly provoked by things that we see in our culture or read in the newspapers, aren't they? But the specific aspect of the city that affected Paul this way was one thing. It was absolutely full of idols. And to say that Athens was full of idols in 50 AD when Paul visited the city is an ironic understatement. Okay, get this. Petronius who was a contemporary of Paul and wrote about Athens, said satirically that it was much easier to find a god in Athens than a man. In fact, Pliny, who's another writer in the ancient period, said that Athens had over 30,000 public statues of gods. That does not account for all the private statues of gods in people's homes. It was home to many temples, to the gods and goddesses, including, of course, the most famous, which is the Parthenon dedicated to Athena. And while it was the center of art and civilization, it was also the world center of idolatry. Now, idolatry was not its only problem. If we read other sources, we learn that prostitution was a major industry in the city of Athens. Homosexual and bisexual relationships were totally the norm in the culture at the time. Abortion was supported by medical practitioners in Greek culture. There's no wonder that Paul, as he passes through the city, his, is finding his spirit provoked. But we should note what Paul doesn't do in response to a culture that is in decay and rampant with immorality, political corruption, and idol worship. 
This is a culture in some ways like our own. But notice what Paul does not do. He does not go to bed. He does not become despondent. He does not assume the fetal position. He does not conclude that God is a little toy far away on a ridge somewhere, far away from the city or himself. He does not think that God is weak or uninvolved in the life of Athens. And as Matthew Henry observed, he also does not, in the heat of his zeal, break into the Parthenon and pull down the image of Athena or demolish the altars that are all over the city or fly in the face of their priests, nor, as Matthew Henry keeps saying, did he run about the streets crying, you are the bond slaves of the devil, though it was true, true of all those people. But he observed decorum and he kept himself within due bounds, doing only that which became a prudent man. Isn't that amazing? I love that observation of the things he didn't do. What then did Paul do when his spirit is being provoked by a culture in moral decay and spiritual darkness? Well, if you look at verse 18, please look at it in your Bible, you'll notice what he does. He preaches the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. That is a response. Actually, that's the response to a culture in moral crisis. Okay? We, we should note this for ourselves in our own situation. Proclaiming the good news about Jesus is the kind of countercultural activity that Paul and God considers most strategic and worthwhile engaging culture. That's super exciting. In other words, the, the message of Jesus and the resurrection is both at the same time timeless and completely timely. Always. Always. So, look at what he does in verse 17. I love this also. It says, according to his custom, Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout Gentiles. Now, in the midst of cultural breakdown, he keeps his routine. Whenever Paul went to a city, what did he do? He went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who, who attended synagogue. So he keeps his routine. He keeps doing the things he knows God wants him to do, even when he's in Athens. Also, it says in verse 17 that he reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Now, this is an interesting thing. This marketplace, which is called Agora in Greek, is the most famous marketplace in the history of the world, at least in Western civilization. Shall we say that? Because at this marketplace or surrounding this marketplace were some very famous schools. Plato's Academy was standing there. Aristotle's Lyceum were still standing there. And, and their disciples were still teaching the things they taught. In fact, the Agora of Athens was basically the cerebellum of the civilized ancient world. And Paul was now taking the message of Christ and his resurrection to the people in the marketplace who were standing there and doing business or being taught in the city of Athens. Now, notice also it says that Paul reasoned in the marketplace with those who happened to be present. I don't want us to miss this, okay? He didn't have an appointment. Now, one of the things is it's a little bit different in Athens because people talked about philosophical ideas all the time. We don't do that at HEB here. Generally, you don't get into a big philosophical discussion with someone outside of the grocery store. I wish we did. We would be a better culture if we did. Because philosophical ideas usually matter 
um, much more than, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, sports. So, but it is true. And um, so it was, it was, there was a sense in which, did I offend you? Okay, just, just you looked serious. Um, that there's a sense in which um, it was easier, kind of, for Paul to talk about things that were, were um, important like that. Notice also the text says that he reasoned with them. Now, that word denotes back and forth discussion. So Paul's still not haranguing people. He's not doing what, what Matthew Henry said he didn't, which is, which is sort of proclaiming um, uh, uh, in the square. He's, he's talking to people. He's reasoning with them. He's trying to persuade them um, about Jesus and the resurrection. Okay, so he takes a social risk. It might be a little bit different than ours, but he boldly enters into explicitly spiritual conversations with people who happen to be knowing about the Agora. Now, you and I can do the same thing with our friends and acquaintances. I just want to encourage you, this is applicable to our day. So when my wife and I were, were on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, we would sort of do that in the, in, at, the, at the student union building. Whoever happened to be present, we would pounce on them and talk to them about Jesus and the resurrection. I hated that. It was terrifying. I don't like going up to people I don't know and trying to get into a conversation with them about eternity. That's absolutely terrifying. But I, I loved doing it every time I did it because I realized I'm caring for this person's eternal soul. And I can't tell you how many people, not through me, maybe through my wife, but not through me. But anyway, I can't tell you how many people in the history of American culture, because they were standing around at the student union building, some campus crusade for Christ staff person came up and shared the gospel with them and their, their eternity was changed because they were standing around in the marketplace, so to speak. So we have friends, we have acquaintances. It's possible for us to, 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 to talk to them about Jesus and the resurrection. It's, it's, it's just exciting here. So, but the point is, Paul didn't get away with what he was doing. They didn't think he was amazing. In fact, what did the Athenians think of Paul, Paul's teaching? It tells us right in verse 18. It says that the Epicureans and the Stoics, we, we could talk about those two philosophies if we had more time, were conversing with them. And some of them said, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. All right, now, these phrases are just absolutely wonderful. The Greek phrase for idle babbler is spermologos. And what it literally means is someone who picks seeds up. And so they're, they're, they're berating Paul as being a second-rate or third-rate intellectual, like a guy who just takes kind of intellectual scraps and puts something together in an intellectual stew and serves it up to people. So this is not a term of respect. And then they also... Uh, call him a proclaimer of strange deities. Now, it also says down in verse 20, if you look there, that Paul was bringing strange things to their ears. So we can't miss seeing that he's being regarded by some of his hearers, not all of them, but some of them, as an odd and strange person. Yes, agreed. Thank you, Jeff. Now, isn't that exactly... What many people in your culture, growingly secular as it is, think of Jesus Christ. He is an odd and strange person. Is, isn't it foreign to their way of thinking about themselves and their future and their lives? 
isn't it the case that Jesus and his ways are, are becoming more and more outside the stream of cultural orthodoxy? Isn't it the case that the idea of the resurrection being important to human beings is seen as somehow kind of irrelevant to real living in our culture today? And it's not that people are going to spit on you yet for talking about those things in our culture, but they might shake their heads and kind of look out the side of their eyes at you. Okay, so the point is that one thing is true. We've got to remember this response is actually not a sign that you are weird. It is not a sign if someone thinks that you've come out of your, crawled out of your religious cul-de-sac to, to, to broadcast weird ideas in your culture that Jesus is actually irrelevant or that the resurrection is not completely vital to every single human being's life in eternity. Paul was treated that way. Our culture might treat us this way for talking about Jesus and the resurrection, but there's actually nothing wrong or false about the gospel or Jesus or your faith in him, despite the response you and I might get from time to time. We have to accept that. Paul did, totally. Okay, but notice, some of his hearers wrote him off, while some of them wanted to hear more about what he was saying. In fact, some of the influential hearers decided to arrange a hearing for him at the Areopagus. Now, just so you know, in verse 19, the Areopagus literally means the hill of Mars. And this is a hill that is a physical hill about 35 feet high. I've never been there. Some of you have had the privilege to go there. Um, that's a blessing from God. I'm a little bit jealous. But anyway, it's a 35-foot high hill that's just northwest of the famous Acropolis in the city of Athens. It's still there today. At the time, it was the home of the court of the city, and it was also the place where people came to hear ideas and teaching. Um, so the council that convenes there essentially is the collection of what we would call today university scholars and professors who will determine what teachers and what teachings are fit to be proclaimed in the city of Athens. So Paul's being examined, his teachings being evaluated. Now, um, why did they bring Paul there, though, you might wonder, if some philosophers had already deemed his teaching to be derivative and second-rate? And I think it's because, well, actually, Luke tells us in the text there, is because Athenians just can't resist hearing new ideas. This is the seat of philosophy in the Greek world. And so, as Luke says, the Athenians and strangers visiting there, that is all the visiting scholars or people who want to learn, used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That sounds like human nature, doesn't it? So Paul's invited in a sense, to speak to the Harvard professors of the ancient world. And then the question becomes, this ball is very dangerous. The question becomes, what should he say? What will he say to them? Should he show off his great learning? Paul's an incredibly educated person. Will he foam and spit and blast them as heathen idolaters? Will he decry them as fools for indulging in spiritual darkness or all the immoral practices that are, that are part of Athenian culture? Now, how should we engage our culture if, if we, if we want to think about that? As we see what Paul does, I'm going to submit to you that, that we should imitate him in many ways here because Paul is basically going to give us in this speech the strategic response to a culture in crisis. He's going to show us that we should enjoy God and talk about Jesus and his resurrection. Okay, 
So let's look what he says in verse 22. Notice, Paul addresses them in classical fashion. Men of Athens, he says. You could possibly see him in a toga saying this with his hand outstretched like Socrates, right? He tells them, I've been walking through your city. And he's been walking through their city with his eyes wide open, spiritually speaking. He says, you are very religious. And he realizes their misguided, idolatrous practices do actually indicate spiritual hunger. And so he's going to capitalize on that. He says, you're very thorough in your reverence to the gods. Now, notice, it's reverence to false gods that provoked Paul to irritation, but he's not berating them. Instead, he notes that the Athenians are so zealous to appease all the gods that exist that they even made sure that any god they didn't know the name of also had an altar in the city. In fact, that's what he says, that he, he, he noted an altar in their city to the unknown god in case they missed one. Now, this is, notice, the inroad for him preaching the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is. Okay, he says that this one, or I mean, he realizes this one feature of corrupt Athenian religious practice is preparing their minds to hear the truth about the unknown God. That is the God that Paul himself knows. And he's thereby forging a connection with his audience. Can you see that? It's really genius. I found this altar, he says. And, I'm go and, in, and then he goes on. What you worship in ignorance without knowing, he's not insulting them there. He's saying, what you worship that you don't know, I'm now going to proclaim to you. Now, this is actually a beautiful approach to people in a religiously misguided and pluralistic culture. Like Paul, we could observe the practices of people in our day, in our society, in our pluralistic culture, and figure out how to connect the truth of Jesus and his resurrection with those practices. What if we viewed, for example, people congregating at the bar as a practice of religious fellowship? Isn't the reason people go to the bar to be with people and to actually forget their troubles and be happy? They want to be happy. They want to be with people. Isn't that close to the same reason you and I became Christians? Because we wanted to have some way to surmount our troubles and we wanted to be with people as well as lots of other things. We wanted to be in fellowship with God. So there's, there's much to be considered here about how Paul engages his culture. Now, having been an astute student of Athenian culture and having used his observations as his connection and starting point, look how he launches into the good news. Look at verse 24 and 25. He says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, these are wonderful words reminding you and I of wonderful things. Enjoy God. Paul is enjoying God right now in front of all these intellectuals. Look what he's saying to us. He's saying that God is not small. He's saying that God is not far off sitting idly on a ridgetop somewhere. He's saying that God is not divorced from Athenian culture. In fact, God is the originator of human culture. He's the source 
of human and all life. God is the source, actually, of everything that exists. Our God, Yahweh, made the world, Paul says. God made the whole arranged cosmos. He made everything that furnishes it. He made the plains and the oceans. He made the mountains and the deserts. He made the fish and the birds and the animals. And he made human beings. He's the God of heaven. He's the God of the earth. And he made it all. And therefore, he is the Lord of everything. Those truths actually saturate our Bibles. Paul's preaching what the Old Testament teaches. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. In Job 12, it says, In God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. In Isaiah 42, it says, God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, he gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. God is the maker of everything, and Paul is simply stating what reality is like. And this glorious truth forms not only the substance of the scriptures, but also, notice, it's the most glorious thing that you and I possess as human beings. This is the jewel that makes the treasure that we find in the field worth selling and getting rid of everything else in order to have. God is God. And he's our God. He made the world. He made everything. And he is the Lord. And Paul is clearly proclaiming that beautiful truth to these Athenians. Now, there are truths that flow from this truth. And he's going to tell us that. Since Yahweh made the world and everything in it, he's naturally Lord of the world and all that's in it. He's the creator and inventor, and therefore he's necessarily the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, are the bright minds in, in Paul's culture rejecting God? Possibly. Are the bright minds in our culture rejecting God? Are more people in America checking none on the census for the box indicating religious affiliation? Are leaders becoming hostile to Christian expression in our culture? Are people rejecting God's good plan and beautiful design for human functioning and sexuality and family life? Well, okay. Our God is the Lord of heaven and earth. All of it. All of us. Everyone and everything belongs to our God. He's the, and we are subject to his wonderful rulership. He is Lord. Now, I want you to notice, this is not a religious belief that Paul's proclaiming. He's just telling them what reality is constituted as. God made all things, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. So, Paul's going to help his, his hearers then comprehend the implications of those central truths. He says, because God made all things and is therefore Lord of all, naturally, he can't dwell in temples like the Parthenon. Furthermore, he doesn't need all of the animal sacrifices that people offer to their various gods. And third, he's actually not served by human hands. That would be to pretend, as he says in verse 25, that God needed something from us. He actually needs nothing. 
He's completely self-sufficient. D.A. Carson, in a wonderful book he wrote called The God Who Is There, said this. He said, God does not need you. He certainly does not need me. He does not need our praise bands. He does not need us to worship him. He does not need our money. He does not need us at all. He does not need anything. In eternity past, before there was anything else, God was, and he was entirely full of joy and contentment in himself. Isn't that amazing? The psalmist Asaph puts it this way in Psalm 50. Every beast of the forest is mine, says God, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the whole world is mine and all it contains. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns the hills. So he doesn't need us or the things we can do for him, but rather our God generously gives us the privilege of participating in the world he made and sustains and is redeeming. He invites us to be a part of his work to build his kingdom and to fulfill his purpose. All things, life as Paul says, breath, and every other thing that we need are the essential things that not that we give to God or we give to ourselves, but that God gives generously and freely to us constantly. This is our God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's not served by human hands. Rather, he gives to us all the things that you and I need. Now, can you see how in light of this truth, all about God's nature, that the Athenians were shown to have been worshiping little tiny toys on a ridgetop somewhere? All the gods of the Greeks and the Romans are toys in comparison to this god. They're like little ants on their anthill. And can you see how this brief glimpse that Paul gives them of the one true God sullies every other idea of him? And how God's greatness is the truth that all other ideas must be measured by. These are the things that Paul's helping them hear and see. And this is the central truth, that God is God. And he made all things, and he's the one who gives us life and breath and all things. This is the central truth that shoves all of our little societal experiments with new marital arrangements and all our pretensions as Americans that we aren't accountable for every deed and word that we speak and all of our little efforts to snuff out unwanted lives and bothersome truths in perspective as very foolish and deadly games that we are playing like kindergartners at recess. When we realize that God is the God of heaven and earth, that God is the Lord of everything, that the light of that truth shines like 50 suns on our ideas and our works, and suddenly we see them for what they really are. So I'm asking you as a Christian not to abandon God's greatness but to enjoy God and rather to abandon your discouragement and your silly notions that God is somehow far away or lacking in power and to disavow our shrunken concepts of his nature and his being and embrace everything that God says about himself and the world he made. He's God. He's the maker of everything and he's the Lord of us and all that exists. Now, briefly, Let's tour through the rest of what Paul says. 
In verse 26, he says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Let's stop right there for a moment. So notice, Paul's telling us that God is the Lord over all the nations in two ways. First of all, in respect to time. He determines how long they last. And then secondly, in respect to space, he determines the boundaries that every nation occupies. That's how sovereign our God is. That's how in charge of the world he actually is. So he's no regional God like the, the Romans and the Greeks worshipped, but actually he's the God of all regions and the God of every nation. And he's, of course, therefore to be worshipped. So he goes on and says, and actually, not only is he the God of nations as a whole, but he's actually the God who's totally close to every single individual that makes up every single nation. In fact, he's so close, it's like he, he's the medium in which people live their lives. He says, in him, we move. Since God made us, we move in him. Since God made us, we live in him. And since God made us, we exist in him in this beautiful sense. In, in other words, our whole life finds its purpose and its functioning and its movement in God himself. This is such a beautiful thing. Now, you, you need to know that Paul's quoting some Greek poets here. So he's kind of showing off his learning a little bit. But really, all he's trying to do is connect the, the good news of who God is to, to Greek and Roman culture here. Okay, so, you know, I, I was trying to think, how can we get this idea of living and existing in God? And I thought about fish. Now, where I come from, rainbow trout are the things we catch, not catfish. Um, and um, they're, they're really good. They are. Not as good as catfish, maybe, but, but they're pretty good. Anyway, the point is, if you were a fish, you would be living in water. And what a river is for fish, God is for you and me. So the river is the medium in which the fish moves around. The, the river is the entire context for the fish's entire life, unless a fisherman, of course, takes it out of its, its, its context. And the river is that from which the fish derives every single sustaining breath it has or it needs. In fact, all of its needs come from the river. So the river is so much the world of the fish that the fish doesn't even know it's there. The fish can't even see the river in a very serious sense. And so it is for you and I. From God, we actually draw every sustaining breath. From God, we actually have the power to move not only our bodies, but like Augustine realized, our minds. The power to think comes from our God. We, in him, we actually live. In him, we actually move. And we actually exist in God. And Paul's trying to help these very intellectual people realize 
There's something miraculous about this God who made all things and about our relationship to him. Let's go on. Verse 29, he says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, this is Paul's final section. And what he's doing is he's applying these glorious truths about God to his hearers. And he's actually calling them to personal action in the moral and spiritual sphere. He knows they're ignorant of the true God. But rather than showering them with a message of God's wrath, he actually says, this God who sustains you is merciful. In fact, he's overlooked the times of your ignorance. And he's now giving you an opportunity to come into a relationship with him. He's showing kindness and mercy towards Athenian sinners who are a lot like you and me and a lot like the people of our culture. And now, proclaiming God's mercy, Paul is going to ask them to respond humbly to that mercy. What should human beings do who've been caught red-handed in ignorant worship? Or who have been blaspheming God by, by worshiping idols? What does verse 30 tell us? It's one word, two syllables. What should human beings do? Yeah, they should repent. This is, this is such an old-fashioned word with all kinds of cultural um, um, barnacles attached to it, right? But, but honestly, it's a beautiful word. It's the thing that you call your kids to when they've been punching each other and you discipline them and you say, would you commit to acknowledging that you just hurt your sister? And would you stop doing that? And your child says, of course your child says, yes, father. No, but, but that's, what, that's what Paul's saying. He's asking the Athenians to say to God, yes, Father, I've been, I've been worshiping you in ignorance. I've been worshiping false gods. I've, I'm living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My own lips are unclean, and I want to turn away from my uncleanness, and I want to know the one true God in whom I live and from whom I draw every breath and everything I need. That's what repentance means. It means turning away from ignorance and sin and immorality and just turning to this one pure God who's so beautiful. So repentance is what human beings do when they comprehend their sin and perceive God's mercy. There's nothing old-fashioned about repentance. It's totally like the gospel, timely and timeless. So Paul's actually calling the Harvard professors of the ancient world to repent. Isn't that refreshing? He's asking them to morally humble themselves and to recognize they've been wrong and to seek the one true God, to seek the truth. Okay, well, so here are four urgent points that Paul makes and then we'll conclude. God will judge the whole world, he says. This is the reason why people should repent. Look at verse 31 one more time. He says, because, they should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness 
So there is a judgment still approaching the world. Now, of course, every person faces judgment after death, but even so, there is a great day of God, as you and I all know, in which, in which everything that has happened will be truly shown for what it actually is. And the proper response to the coming of that judgment is to turn away from sin and immorality and ignorant worship and to turn towards the one true God, to believe the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Also, Paul says a second thing, it's going to happen on a certain day. We don't know what that day is. Even Jesus doesn't know the day, but there is a day that will be marked on a calendar someday in history, just like there were calendars probably before the flood. And there was a day when someone got up and said on their calendar, it's raining pretty hard today. And the next day they said the same thing. And a few days later, the calendar and, and, and they were gone. There will be a day when God returns and he judges the world. That's what Paul's saying. In light of that day, repent and embrace God and embrace the good news about Jesus. Thirdly, that judgment comes from that very person who brings the mercy of God. That there's this man that God has appointed. Notice, these are people who haven't heard about Jesus. There's this man appointed by God. He's not an ordinary person. And the reason we know that is because he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Everyone else who dies, dies. Even people who were raised by Jesus, they died, right? But Jesus rose permanently to indestructible life. That guy has the authority to judge the world, and he's coming again, and you should repent. As John 5 says, not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. And finally, the resurrection proves to all people everywhere that Jesus is that person. He is that judge. He is that man who's coming, the righteous one, to judge the world. All right, well, let's conclude. How did Paul respond to a worldly culture? Did he just dive into his business or decide to become a professional athlete or, or I don't know, go home and suck his thumb? No, that's not how Paul responded to a worldly culture. He enjoyed God and he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. He remembered who God is. He remembered that God is God, that he's the maker and Lord of everything and every person, that he's the generous provider of life and breath and all things that we have. And therefore, Paul is declaring that we shouldn't be afraid. We don't have to follow the spirit of the age. We're filled with a different kind of spirit because we're worshiping a different God. We're worshiping the God who leads us into all truth and encourages us, our hearts and gives us hope. And Paul remembers the truth about God, and he enjoys God in the midst of a corrupt culture. And secondly, he courageously talks to that culture about Jesus and his resurrection. Now, I know you're a bit scared to do that sometimes. I am too, as I said before. And I know you don't want to be heavy and awkward at HEB in a culture that considers chill to be a virtue. So, but there are bigger virtues than chill in the world, actually. And if we get what Paul just taught us about how great and real and big and beautiful and huge God actually is, and if we actually love the people we're living our lives around in this town, a little fear or a little awkwardness are nothing 
in comparison with the beauty and the power and the subject of our message to the world. As Jesus told his followers, you are not alone. I am with you to the end of the age. Let's pray.